trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Look, you like me may be somebody who would just like to live a quiet, unassuming life, enjoy the good things that this world has to offer, and, uh, you know, all you ask in return is that the world leave you alone. Well, you can probably tell that's not going to be the case. (laughs) The world is not going to leave us alone. There are forces out there every day not only trying to uh, exert domination and control over us, but I think the worst part of it is they, they seek to deceive at every level possible, psychologically, subconsciously, it's it's all about uh, trying to convince us not so much to just, you know, snap to when they say, you know, you jump and, you know, you ask me how high when I tell you to jump. Uh, it's more a matter of trying to convince us to give up our own voluntary volition over ourselves and to, to allow ourselves to be controlled. Yeah, I'm against that kind of thing. And, and the remedy that I believe is most feasible is for us common, average people, you and me, to think for ourselves, think clearly, think independently. I think this is especially important in times of crisis. And if you look around you, you don't have to use a whole lot of imagination to see that we have layers upon layers of crises <laughs> developing and being laid upon us. So we've got our work cut out for us. So my goal here is, uh, it's multi-pronged. I, I want to cover a couple of different things. Number one, I want you to understand you're not alone. If you're a person who puts priority on truth, you are the person I'm speaking to. And you're not insane, and you're not out of step with the... Well, you may be out of step with society, but that's actually kind of a good thing. But I want you to be more certain of who you are and what you stand for than simply, hey, you need to hate this, or you need to hate them, or you need to be angry about this or fearful about that. That's what the entire manipulation apparatus is trying to do. I'm asking you, question the narrative. Know who you are, know what you stand for. Make the difference you were born to make. And it's going to be different for every single one of us. I've got great sponsors who make this show possible. You'll notice a special segment of my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com is dedicated to recognizing those sponsors like Dixie Chiropractic and HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center, Monticello College, also Life Saving Food, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. So I'm going to tackle a topic here that, well, let's just say it's, this is not the easiest one that that I've taken on. And I'm a little bit hesitant in the sense that I don't want people to misunderstand what I'm saying and and make it sound like, well, gee, I'm just telling you what we need to be is as antisocial as possible. But I'm going to suggest that as the world spins out of control in many areas, it's a very necessary thing to evaluate the relationships around you and choose your team wisely. It's essential. You've got to do it. But uh, how you do that for some folks is going to be a little bit different because we hang on to, we hang on to what uh, I guess we could call unproductive or sometimes even destructive relationships. There's a great article from The Good Citizen on how to build your wolf pack. 
It's called The Strength of the Wolf, Reevaluating Relationships in Our Post-Plandemic World. This is some very straight talk, and I'm going to warn you right now. The chances of it making you uncomfortable are extremely high. Nonetheless, I think it's worth sharing. And I, and I'll, before I share it, I want to confess that, you know, um, looking over relationships, establishing boundaries, and especially deciding, is this, you know, a, a relationship, friendship that's that's worth continuing, or is this, you know, just kind of a casual, yeah, we like each other's stuff on Facebook or whatever. This is really a necessary thing, even if it is uncomfortable. Culling unproductive relationships in your life and moving on is a really tough thing. It's not just tough for, you know, middle school age girls. It's it's really tough for everybody, but it's also a necessary part of life. So with that in mind, The Good Citizen starts with a quote from Rudyard Kipling from The Law for the Wolves. Now, this is the law of the jungle, as old and as true as the sky. And the wolf that shall keep it may prosper, but the wolf that shall break it must die. As the creeper that girdles the tree trunk, the law runneth forward and back. For the strength of the pack is the wolf, and the strength of the wolf is the pack. Now, the good citizen writes, The world is changing fast. Most people can't keep up. How many friends do you see that have kept up? And, and this is a great way to look at it. How many friends do you see who, who, if you sat down and talked about the past two years, could say without hesitation, it was all a complete scam engineered to give more power to governments and to test how obedient and subservient populations would be? How many friends would call it a depopulation event, a dress rehearsal for what Bill Gates publicly calls the next one? Now, he says the next one will be far worse, and he would know. How many friends wouldn't soil themselves if, out of the blue, you sat at a dinner party? You know, Jim and Sally, don't you find it astonishing that Gates and Dizak and Fauci still aren't swinging from piano wire at the Jefferson Memorial? Yeah, I'll go check on the uh, Beyond Brisket. The point here is, there are friends and then there are passing friends. For nomads and expatriates, a trail of both is left behind in each city passed through over the decades. And it's easy to make them by joining some sports club or showing up regularly to pub trivia or poker rooms, though most of the younger generations simply prefer to swipe right. Once moving on to the next city, few nomad friends stay in touch. Now, there are friends who are besties or BFFs who, by middle school, are passing, hey, and those BFFs in middle school become the same by high school, and so on until there's just a handful that survives the torrid changes from a decade of adolescence and young adulthood. There are friends who belong in the wolf pack, and there are friends who still send Christmas cards to show how great they're doing in their silly knitted sweaters once a year, but offer little else. Now, the good citizen says wolf packs are real friends in the true meaning of the word. The ones who will be there at four in the morning at a moment's notice if the crud hits the fan. Anyone who wants to navigate the minefields of Agenda 30 should be part of a wolf pack in a community that will rally together when things get challenging and provide the support systems needed for survival. Now, this shouldn't be considered doomsday prophesying prophesying advice any longer. If you've been paying attention, you'll know this is just common sense now. Five fathoms below the wolf pack are the friends that most of us still consider, though we shouldn't for much longer. These are acquaintances and those Facebook friends, and neither holds much real-world value beyond occasional digital performing and applauding and That will have no purpose at all soon beyond last-ditch efforts to network or crowdsource problem-solving that can't be resolved inside one's community, like finding a specific baby formula. Only those who aren't prepared 
would need the help of long-lost acquaintances on digital networks to locate something important for the survival of their children. Now, the Good Citizen says our conceptions of friendship have changed significantly in recent decades. Relations grew distant for the most part. What once required a meeting at a restaurant or a cafe could be dealt with in a fraction of the time with a few clicks of a mouse or touches of a screen. Performative actions on social media became acceptable interactions for most people with the occasional WhatsApp, SMS, or DM and a promise to get together soon. There was no need to get truly honest feedback on our personal lives in face-to-face interactions that don't lie when a few dozen likes and comments amazing were enough satiating reinforcement. These censorious networks are simply a series of time-wasting, self-aggrandizing pursuits for ego inflation and neurotransmitter release. By the way, that one stung. Because I have found myself being a dopamine seeker on more than one occasion. You know, checking my Twitter feed, checking Facebook. Oof. They have no future, says the, great, the, the good citizen. As val- they have no future value as systems of hurting behavior and mass Surveillance, not for individuals who value liberty and autonomy. The good citizen writes, for many people, friendships were always a market-based bargain on the returns they would get for their time, attention, and investment in the other person, even subconsciously. And what was no longer satisfying and exclusivity could be recovered in more significant numbers of friends and larger quantities of shallow and dishonest digital feedback. Those once-upon-a-time friends that were revisited every few years in high school yearbooks reappeared magically in the late aughts in the form of friend request alerts on Facebook. And they more or less lingered and surveilled for a decade until recent years when the most politically astute began to disappear. Now, when the pack meets, when pack meets with pack in the jungle, and neither will go from the trail, lie down till the leaders have spoken, it may be fair words shall prevail. How many Facebook friends do you still see around who would be appalled at the suspension of basic civil liberties for a virus with a 99.6% survival rate? For the international government, for the intentional rather, government incentivized murder of nearly a million Americans through the Fauci protocols of remdesivir and ventilators while intentionally subverting early treatment or effective early treatment. How many would know about Tower 7 or know that the Spanish flu was really bacterial pneumonia caused by Rockefeller's mass vaccination campaign? Or that FDR allowed the attack on Pearl Harbor or Tim McVeigh didn't bring down the federal building in Oklahoma City alone? We'll come back to this article here in just a few moments, but that discomfort you're feeling, it's actually a good thing. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing one of the more thought-provoking essays I've encountered this week. It's from the Good Citizen Substack. If there's one to subscribe to, this would probably be a good one. I'll tell you, the the Good Citizen, whoever it is who writes under that pen name, has a, a great knack for putting things into perspective. And this was, uh, this was a topic that addressed something that I've noticed, but I've also been kind of uncomfortable with, and that is how do you sort, how do you prioritize relationships in your life? And, and, you know, this is not to say that you need to be antisocial by any means. It's just going into very tough times, and I think we are right there on the threshold of very tough times. 
For many of us, this is going to be for the first time in our lives. The relationships around us are more important than ever, meaning you can't you can't hang on to unproductive or even dangerous relationships. It's if you want to know who your true friends are, you got to be concerned with, you know, who is your wolf pack. And if you're thinking, well, does that mean we're supposed to be predatory? Not necessarily. It just means that we <clears throat> we find strength in the right kinds of friends and the wrong kinds of friends can actually lead us astray or uh, blunt our ability to move forward in life in a productive direction. So with that in mind, let's jump back into the commentary here. The good citizen asks, how many of your friends would be shocked to learn that uh, FDR allowed the attack on Pearl Harbor or that Tim McVeigh didn't bring down the federal building in Oklahoma City alone? Or for that matter, that the U.S. government attacked its own citizens with anthrax? Any of those profiles would be who would be tuned in or red-pilled were all likely banned from the digital platforms a long time ago. Even a little truth amongst a once amongst once upon a time friends is too much for the information gatekeepers. So the more relevant question regarding that platform is why the hell would anyone still be on Facebook? As with those once upon a time friends who digitally showed up in feeds only to be cold from the platforms for not echoing the mindless Borg. There are those once-a-month leisurely country club friendships that won't have much to offer in the world that we're racing toward. Okay, this is where the rubber starts to meet the road here. The world's getting harsh by design, and only the tough and sharp survive harsh worlds. You can't sharpen a knife against that soft, leisurely country club life of luxury on demand and excess a la carte. Luxuries and leisure will need to be reconsidered for pragmatism and preparation in service of the only relevant question for those concerned with weathering the political and economic engineered storms. What hardships are they planning next? Just as an aside here, I'll give you an example. You've heard talk about pending food shortages. We're going to talk a little bit about that later in the show. You've heard talk about baby formula shortages. How about this? I'm starting to see talk of $6 per gallon gasoline by August. You know, the cost of fuel affects the cost of everything. And again, my goal here isn't to scare you. It's it's to take a good hard look at some real facts and some real possibilities that would be best dealt with, you know, as as calmly and uh, as as decisively as we can. But refusal to face facts are are not going to help us. All right. Back to the commentary. High food prices, energy inflation, currency inflation, economic stagnation, fake meat bug platter TV dinners, and the tiny home revolution, among a hundred other things like surveillance apps and central bank-controlled digital currencies and QR code passports. They're herding people toward the world they want based on their completely misguided belief in overpopulation and limited resources. They, I assume, is referring to the Davos crowd. The agenda is clearly depopulation and forcing people to live with little to nothing. The good citizen says to get there, they need to engineer behavioral and consumer changes, and none of it involves choice or liberty or any of the values even moderately free people valued through history. The best time for preparing to meet the hardships they're creating was over the last decade. The next best time was yesterday, and the third best time is right now. Now, that includes sorting through black books and making difficult decisions about friendships and relationships. It's not just the people we keep close who will matter. 
but the communities that surround us that we actively choose to join. And again, from, from Rudyard Kipling, when ye fight with a wolf of the pack, ye must fight with him alone and afar, lest others take part in the quarrel and the pack is diminished by war. The good citizen says the op- optimal location, stateside, will be a state with low compliance for the medical theater of the past two years and a low tolerance threshold hold for all the engineered madness. Florida, Arizona, Texas, Wyoming, and South Dakota come to mind first, although there are a half dozen others. Governors and local representatives who are not affiliated with global technocratic organizations like the World Economic Forum will be essential. Those who believe in the Constitution and the rule of law may provide shelter from the coming storms. The most important tier will be at the county level. Mayors and sheriffs with strong noses for social engineering BS and a social threshold for federal bureaucratic meddling will provide a nearby bulwark to the insanity. Find that local sheriff who didn't enforce mask mandates, who didn't dole out fines or force his or her deputies to get the clot shots. Find that community that will re-elect them or someone like them. The best locations will be mostly rural, with people distributed across an area with many homesteaders and small farmers. They should be fearless, powerful, armed, resourceful, gritty, and willing to die to keep their family and communities free. These are the people who will form the most effective wolf packs. All the rest who occupy some place in our lives outside our immediate families and the wolf path, wolf, wolf pack rather, are just chaff. Now, those friendships that have survived and thrived over the decades, they're the most difficult to let go of. And no matter how hard it can be, those two need to be reevaluated. Distance, time, echo chambers, mass psychosis, it's possible they've slipped away down a different destiny, and there's no way to recover them. Take their temperature, gauge their socio-political situational acuity, and make the hard choices if needed. The Matrix may have them now, and the grip is tight. It's almost impossible to break. When the government starts leaning on citizen informers, these people will not be your friends. Survival requires looking after ourselves and our own and letting go of weaker links. In the past, there were moments in life when we had a choice to make regarding a relationship with another person. We invested a lot of time and emotion in evaluating relations. In that instant of breakups, things could turn from uncertainty to elation or elation to pain and hurt and possibly a lifetime of regret. Well, that was then. Times have changed. There's no time for emotional attachment, sentimentality, or regret. There's no point in regretting the loss of friendships that are no longer worth managing. It's a time for pragmatism and survival, for cool detachment. It's it's time to cull the sheep from our lives, the extra baggage that isn't worth the effort and upkeep, or having to pretend to be a dupe like them when they're around. There's no time for indulging, their petty gossip, managed narratives and fables, and inconsequential frivolities. The good citizen says, despite our noble efforts, some people can't shapeshift from sheep to wolves, and so we must let the matrix eat them. If it's sheep you want in your life, you can always go to an animal auction and buy some, and at least they produce something useful for your new world. What's needed now to survive the fourth burning and the flying jabs of global management's technocratic dystopic agenda is a solid wolf pack. If at least to howl together that beautiful, wild, and free howl that says to these meddling psychopaths, we will not comply. Come and make us. The strength of the pack is the wolf, and the strength of the wolf is the pack. 
and a wolf pack is no place for sheep. Now, I don't know if that strikes you like it does me, but I read that essay yesterday, and I have found myself coming back to it over and over again and realizing there's enough truth there that it makes me uncomfortable too, but I still think it's true. And I'm not saying this is the time now to start to, you know, whipping out your your directory of friends and family and start to, okay, drawing a line through that one and that one. I'm not going to talk to these people anymore. I'm just saying that if you are serious about weathering the coming storms, you got to choose very carefully the people with whom you are going to most closely associate. And most importantly, you got to be the kind of person that people would want to associate with as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. I want to give a shout out here to sewingandquiltingcenter.com. You can actually click on the link I provide in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Better still, if you live in southern Utah, particularly in the St. George area, you should really stop in and see this amazing business. This is a family-owned business, has been since it was started back in 1984, and it has changed hands, I think, three times. Teresa and Eric Alsop are the current owners, but the original founder of the business still works there, still services the sewing machines and, and other machines that people buy. I don't know if you're aware of this. I've, I've learned a lot through my association with them, and Teresa actually was a guest on the show here just a short time ago. But uh, sewing is a really, really serious pursuit, meaning people are willing to spend upwards of, you know, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 to get the right machine for the job. Long-arm quilting and sergers and embroidery machines. Now, you can also start with a, you know, entry-level sewing machine for under $200. But the key is, are you buying it from someplace that can service what they sell and that will train you, like will give you free classes to learn how to use that machine to its fullest. Because Sewing and Quilting Center will. Sewingandquiltingcenter.com. Hope you'll check them out. Better still, I hope you'll do business with them. Well, maybe this is a little too close to Hollywood or political gossip, something I really try to stay away from, but the Elon Musk and Twitter saga has been very revealing. And I've got a great article here from Andrea Widberg. This is from AmericanThinker.com. The one-two of Elon Musk and Project Veritas might just end Twitter. She says, it turns out that Elon Musk had a good reason to put the Twitter deal on hold. Because it's possible that Twitter management may have misrepresented the number of actual accounts it has versus fake or spam accounts. And in another blow to the now beleaguered social media company, Project Veritas just put out another undercover video on Tuesday, this one of an ad executive mocking Musk for supporting free speech and having Asperger's, along with freely admitting that Twitter doesn't make any money. Between one and the other, it's entirely possible Twitter will soon collapse from its own weight. Now, it was a bit of a mystery just a few days ago when Elon Musk had put the the Twitter deal on hold. And it turns out he's essentially accusing Twitter of having lied on its SEC filings about fake spam accounts. And now of having refused to show him proof justifying the information in the SEC filings. What Musk tweeted a few days ago was 20% fake or spam accounts while four times higher than what Twitter claims could be much higher. So he says, my offer was based on Twitter's SEC filings being accurate. Yesterday, Twitter's CEO 
publicly refused to show proof of less than 5%. And he says this deal cannot move forward until he does. Now, Andrea Woodberg says, although Musk put tweets this information out rather casually, it's actually stunning because putting fraudulent information in an SEC filing can result in huge fines and even prison sentences for the executives involved. And additionally, if the advertisers were buying ads for a fixed price based upon their belief about the potential number of eyes on the ads, they could have a fraud action against the company. So what should be making Twitter even more nervous is that now that Musk has put the idea out there, others are noticing anomalies suggesting that a lot of Twitter is fake. Here are a couple of tweets from Pranay Pathol. Twitter claims less than 5% of their users are fake, spam, or bots. It seems that that number is at least four to five times more. The lowest estimate is roughly 20% of their users are fake or spam accounts. And he asks, Elon, what do you think could be the highest estimate as to how many accounts are present? How many fake accounts, rather, are present? 50%? Considering that this tweet is the most liked tweet that your your, uh, tweet, the one about... uh, Um, I'm buying Coca-Cola to put cocaine back in. This was a tweet that uh, Musk did after he made the offer for Twitter. Joking, of course. He says, considering that this tweet is the most liked tweet of all time, which is only liked or interacted interacted with rather by 2 to 2.5% of the entire Twitter user base, there's a very high possibility the number of fake spam bot accounts could be well over 50%. To which Elon Musk replied, exactly. Now, Andrea Woodberg says additionally, a new audit has revealed that half of the followers that Joe Biden's Twitter account shows are fake. Oh, no, I I know. You're surprised as I am. After all, you know, he so clearly won the 2020 election. It was, uh, I mean, you saw how packed his political rallies were during the campaign. You saw how popular he is. I mean, it's, it's not a surprise, right? All right. Sarcasm off. Andrew Woodberg says, this is no surprise to those of us who understand. Joe ran a fake campaign. The election was faked. Biden is a great pretender, or more accurately, a lousy pretender, falsely occupying the White House. She says, I'm surprised that only half his followers are fake. Then, to make Twitter's Tuesday even more miserable, Project Veritas released a video of Alex Martinez, a Twitter lead client partner, in other words, an advertising executive, saying Twitter is opposed to free speech that the company makes no profit, and that Elon Musk is special, but not in a good way, because he has Asperger's. That's one of the things that's always true, is when you scratch an ardent out-there leftist, you find someone unkind. Martinez, whose favorite word is like, which he sprinkles liberally in most sentences, had some fascinating statements to make. People need to be told what to think. He says... People don't know how to make a rational decision if you don't put out correct things that are supposed to be out in the public, right? Also, Twitter cares about the planet, not free speech. Martinez says, the rest of us who've been here believe in something that's good for the planet and not to give people free speech. Martinez also believes Musk is crazy. He has Asperger's, so he's special. We all know that, and that's fine. Well, so here, no wonder he's going to say some effing crazy S because he's special. This one is stunning, though. Martinez says Twitter doesn't make any money, although he later adds that the CEO and board make a lot of money. What he said was, right now we don't make profit, so I'm going to say ideology, which is what led us into not being profitable. But the most priceless moment in the video comes near the end when Martinez congratulates himself for not having been caught in a Project Veritas sting. 
Now, at this point, Andrew Woodberg says, I'm not sure it matters anymore whether Musk buys Twitter or not. It's been exposed as a pretty vile institution, one that is communist in outlook. He also talks about that. Martinez says, you know, that uh, the, the staff, the upper staff at Twitter are communist as F word, his words. But you think about it. Yeah, they are pretty communist in their outlook. They hate free speech. Twitter mocks people who have medical conditions and or at least, uh, again, this representative of Twitter mocks people with medical conditions and may have possibly committed massive fraud against the SEC, Musk, and its advertisers. So it may be a case of dead company walking. And yes, the video showing this Twitter executive, you know, calling Elon Musk mentally handicapped and saying that Twitter's not here to give people free speech. You can watch it. It's linked within the the article, which is linked in my show notes at thebryanthideshow.com. Now, my goal here isn't to, you know, just get you all ginned up and angry at Twitter. But just to understand, the truth is getting out. The truth is starting to seep through despite the best efforts to keep us distracted, to, you know, to fact check and and to use sophistry to keep us from recognizing things that that are bad. Um, Caitlin Johnstone put it this way. You know, the, the fact checkers are out there not to stop misinformation. Their job is to prevent us from recognizing actual information about what the ruling class is doing to us. They do a fairly good job of it, but you know what? A lot of people still are beginning to catch on and wake up. I know you're one of them or you wouldn't be listening to this program. So the goal here isn't to, hey, now that you know this, let's all get together and let's go pick it outside Twitter's headquarters and make our voices heard, or better still, let's throw trash at them as they walk down the street. No. I'm just saying that if you rely on Twitter as a source of how you see the world or you know how you get a, a vantage point from which to, to view what's going on around you, just understand there's a great deal of manipulation. Understand that what uh, information you find on there is pretty worked over before it gets to you. And maybe you'll discover something that, uh, you know, I've I've recently recognized, and that is it feeds my need for dopamine. If I find myself checking, you know, my Twitter feed, oh, somebody, somebody retweeted something that I posted, somebody liked, someone commented. There is, there's a little reward center in your brain that goes, ah, this is, this is great. I mean, look, I love accolades as much as the next person. Someone pays me a compliment, you bet, I'm going to beam, I might blush. But we got to be focused on more than just, uh, you know, hitting those little uh, reward centers in our brain the right way, thanks to social media. Times we're living in right now require us to be people who are people who possess substance. And dopamine, great as it may feel, is not the stuff that life is built on. So maybe, just maybe consider not just Twitter, but any other social media that you're using, is it really providing the benefit that you think, or are you just looking for your next, uh, you know, opportunity to feel good about yourself? And I say this as one who's recently recognized, oh my gosh, that's exactly what I've been doing. I know it's a painful realization. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage located in St. George, Utah. Now, actually, if you are catching this message anywhere within the state of Utah or the state of Idaho, particularly if you are in the market for a home and need to get a mortgage, I want you to give Heather a call. You can do so at 435-703-4522. You can stop by her office and you're in southern Utah. If you're in southern Utah, go to 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. You can check her out. Talk to Heather and her team at Patriot Home Mortgage because they are the ones who bring the experience, the stability, and the clout to get you the loan you need without delay. Time is of the essence, especially when it comes to getting that uh, that uh, loan. Talk to Heather Heather Turner and her team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Her NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Well, do you want a little bit of good news? Can I give you just a just a quick uh, quick update here? Remember the uh, the Ministry of Truth? I'm sorry, the, the new Disinformation Governance Board? I don't know if you caught the news yesterday, but uh, Nina Jankowitz, who was uh, appointed to head up this particular part of the Department of Homeland Security, the, the Disinformation Governance Board, has resigned amid major pushback from conservatives who compared the board to an Orwellian Ministry of Truth. According to the Washington Post, working groups within the DHS focusing on mis-, dis-, and mal-information have been suspended. Now, the board was reportedly shut down on Monday. Jankowitz submitted her resignation letter in response to the board's dissolution on Tuesday morning. However, Department of Homeland Security officials reportedly had an urgent call with her on Tuesday night and gave her the option of staying on board even if her work was put on hold due to the backlash. Taylor Lorenz, a reporter who's somewhat of an expert and cry bully uh, on on bullying, (laughs) says the board could still be shut down pending a review from the Homeland Security Advisory Council. So there are a couple things we can take from this, and I'm just going to give just the kind of quick down and dirty. Number one, ridicule is an effective tool against tyranny. And I'm grateful that this thing was, uh, how can I put this nicely, strangled in its crib while it was still in its infancy. But the second lesson that we need to take away from this is there is very clearly an effort going on within various bureaucracies of our federal government and elsewhere to test us and to push us and to just see how much are we willing to put up with? What's our tolerance threshold? And it turns out that uh, quite a number of people, myself included, and most likely you, were not really willing to embrace the idea of, oh, good, finally, a disinformation governance board to protect us from misinformation. Again, it's not misinformation they're trying to protect us from. They're trying to prevent us from hearing information that would give us a clue to what our um, putative leaders are really up to and what they intend to inflict on us. So, on the one hand, I'm happy to see this thing shut down. On the other hand, I don't buy into the uh, the narrative that, well, it's because, uh, uh, what's his name, Jack Posobiec, who, by the way, is, is a brilliant uh, a brilliant poster on Twitter. Very prolific, but he's also very effective. He's the one they blame. Well, he's the one who started this right-wing campaign that somehow, you know, targeted Jankowitz, and, you know, she had to, she had to quit because she was being cyber-bullied. <laughs> Boo-hoo. Yeah. 
with the weight of the federal government and the Department of Homeland Security behind her, she was just being picked on, and it was just so unfair, as opposed to the American citizenry was in danger of having more of its speech parsed and managed and controlled by an already out-of-control government. So, good riddance. It may be paused, but I think we can safely, you know, call the time of death, Tuesday morning, 11 a.m. Let's go bury this thing behind the barn and move on. And don't forget the power of awareness combined with memes to create a groundswell of opposition to another badly hatched government idea. All right, I'm going to shift gears here. Now I'm going to ask you a tough question and... Think before you answer this. Do you still believe that our government is working to represent you and your interests? Got a great article here from J.B. Shirk on how Americans and their government have become divided by a common language. So here's an example. American voters say, we're concerned about the prices of milk, eggs, baby formula, and gas. The U.S. government responds, so you're saying we should spend tens of billions more on a proxy war against Russia and ban oil and natural gas drilling here at home. American voters respond, no. Listen, inflation is making it impossible to afford groceries. Our businesses are dying. To which the U.S. government responds, you want us to talk more about transgenderism and legacies of slavery? Maybe throw in some free sexual grooming advice for your children? The American voters say, pay attention. We'll talk slowly for the remedial learners in Congress. In every way possible, America is headed in the wrong direction right now. To which the U.S. government responds, you think we need more illegal immigration right now? That's fine. We can do that. No problem. Now, J.P. Shirk says, Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw humorously remarked that Britain and America are two nations divided by a common language. Now the same could be said about American citizens and their public servants. There's what Americans want, and there's what those in power give them. So much for representative government, eh? Oh, pshaw, some will say. We still have representative government. We're just no longer the ones it represents. If the security fencing surrounding much of D.C. weren't a dead giveaway, the Leviathan's merciless efforts to target half the country as terrorists and insurrectionists have drilled the point home. Americans, you will behave or you will lose your First Amendment privileges for good. And if you persist in your mischief, we will be forced to bump up gas prices and starve even more of your children. So from the swamp's point of view, greed and power are the only constituents worth representing. Citizens, in contrast, are just a bureaucratic hassle to be managed. Now, that doesn't sound like a government of the people, by the people, for the people, does it? It Sounds more like a government setting itself above those it governs using force and coercion to bend its subjects to its will. Well, if that's how democracy is now defined, J.B. Shirk says it's little surprise that the New World Order crowd sings its praises. I say, good sir, don't those heavy-handed executive mandates reek of despotism? Impossible! This is democracy! Well, no wonder the Chinese Communist Party has the gall to praise a rigged Hong Kong election in which its hand-picked candidate receives nearly 100% of the vote as a victory for democracy. The D word has become the quintessential get-out-of-jail-free card for all the world's tyrants. When Nancy Pelosi and Xi Jinping both feign allegiance to democracy while threatening anyone who might weaken their power, well, then the word has lost all meaning. Of course, an epidemic of words losing their meaning is now more contagious than the Chinese flu. When men or women 
Babies aren't human. Constitutional rights are ephemeral. Equality requires treating all social groups differently. Freedom is selfish. Free speech is dangerous. And fighting racism demands elevating race over everything else. Then truth becomes nothing more than what those with power declare it to be. Because truth is the first casualty in any war, an important question arises. Shouldn't this explosion of government-sponsored falsehoods also force us to consider whether we are, in fact, under attack? Shouldn't the American government's commitment to manipulate meaning and control acceptable information be seen as the opening salvos in a war against the people it also insists on controlling? Right now, America feels chaotic and unmoored. Yet this is how all wars begin by first saturating the battlefields with waves of invasive propaganda meant to shape the thoughts and deeds of the combatants. Perhaps the confusion in America today rests entirely with most Americans' unwillingness to acknowledge that their government could possibly see them as the enemy. It doesn't matter how many times the FBI harasses parents at school board meetings or how egregiously unfair the Department of Justice's treatment of January 6th political protesters remains. The idea that the American government is attacking the American people is too much for some people to accept. If the madness afflicting America today feels a little like Alice in Wonderland dodging the Queen of Hearts, though it might just be because of the off with their off with their heads sounds a lot like official government policy. A pro-abortion, anti-family American ruling class, financially and ideologically aligned with a Davos death cult, obsessed with population control and climate apocalypse can be no cheerleader for life, liberty, or happiness. Traditional notions of American individualism and self-determination have no home in a country whose government finds free will a threat to its legitimacy. Unalienable rights are anathema to any power structure too brittle to survive dissent. J.B. Shirk says, in other words, when the American government stops representing the American people and instead focuses exclusively on enriching itself... It stops speaking the common political language that has united the American people for 250 years and guided the United States through the bitter moments of its past to become stronger on the other side. When American citizens and the American government speak the same words yet disagree on their meaning, then neither those governing nor those governed can remain bound together for long. Dang, that's about as direct as it gets. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I want you to know something about this program, and that is my goal is not to build the largest, most loyal listening audience in history. Now, that may sound like a cop-out or it may sound counterproductive. Well, why else would you want to do this sort of thing? And the answer is simply this. I'm speaking to that remnant of people out there, however big or however small it is, who still value truth above comfortable lies or above the assurance from people who are trying to rule them that uh, everything is fine. This is fine. This is normal. Adjust your chains and move on. This is exactly as things are supposed to be. 
chances are the fact that you're even listening to this means you already understand. No, it's not fine. It's not the way things were intended to be. And it doesn't matter if there is, you know, if our listening audience consists of the the same five individuals who have been my core listeners for the last 25 to 30 years. Nope. Nope. It's about the fact that the truth still needs to be spoken because there are still people who are seeking it. And I, if I can confess something to you, I don't know how big my audience is or isn't. In fact, I really, I don't spend time obsessing. Oh, did I get more listens? Is there more? What's the audience? What the numbers? What are the numbers? I don't care. And I'm not being arrogant here because I just know that, you know, that my message is so important that, of course, people are going to find it. I understand. This is not a message that's going to resonate for everybody. Some people are just not ready to hear the kind of things that I will share on this program. That's totally okay. In fact, if you're one of those people and you're going, all right, well, I gave it a shot. It's just not my cup of tea. That's fine. But there are people out there who are actively looking for the truth, unsure what to make of all that's going on around us, and and just looking for not so much someone to tell them what to think, but looking for some credible, timely, principle-based information on which they can continue their search for truth. So I give you the best information that I can find. I leave it up to you as to what you will do with that, whether you incorporate it into your life or just, all right, nod and say that was interesting, but maybe it doesn't really add that much to your vantage point. It's all about thinking clearly and independently. And never is that more important than during times of crisis, which I think it's pretty safe to say we're living in a time of crisis. So let's dive into another great topic here. Um, I I have a lot of different resources. In fact, on my website, thebrianhideshow.com, I have a page specifically dedicated to resources for wrong thinkers. And these are some of the better news aggregators and different uh, um, publications and platforms that seem to have attracted voices of reason that can, can cover difficult topics without devolving into name-calling or spittle-flinging or otherwise just going off on some kind of an ideological tirade. Intellectualtakeout.org is one of those great, great resources. And I like to check them on a daily basis because I can always find something that's relevant and it's also extremely thoughtful. Case in point. This is the latest from Annie Holmquist, How to Raise Kids Who Don't Have Daddy Issues. The takeaway from this one is today's society does a good job of insinuating fathers are worthless and unnecessary, but Annie Holmquist says nothing could be further from the truth. So, you probably heard the phrase, she's got daddy issues. Usually said with a roll of the eyes or a heavy sigh, the phrase daddy issues signals that an adult, often a female but sometimes a male, has trouble forming solid relationships. And this problem is attributable to the fact that a person didn't have a great relationship with his or her father as a child. Given the rate of broken homes and children being raised by single parents in recent decades, things are ripe for a large portion of the population to have daddy issues. In fact, daddy issues may be a reason why we see so much anger, anxiety, loneliness, and even a decline in marriage and childbirth rates in our nation. Annie Holmquist asks, so how can today's young men ensure that they don't raise children with daddy issues? Or how can today's young women ensure that they're marrying a man who won't give their children daddy issues? In other words, how do we make sure the next generation is raised by 
good fathers. Well, Annie says, drawing upon my own childhood as someone who was blessed to be raised by a good father, I have a few ideas that any man can implement to become a good dad. I thought she had some really good ones here. Number one, play with them. She says, the time I remember playing with my father, the time I most remember playing with my father happened once a month when mom left for a regularly scheduled monthly event. Inspired by Little House on the Prairie books, we played Mad Dog, with dad racing around on his hands and knees and growling and chasing my sister and me while we ran around the dining room table screaming. We pulled out the Lincoln logs and blocks together, building houses for our little Fisher Price people. We sat on dad's shoulders as he raced around the house, giving us the thrill of ducking to narrowly missed door frames. Now, such rough housing would be frowned upon in today's bubble-wrapped culture. But she says fathers who engage in such behavior with their children not only create fond memories, but they also provide a needed sensory experience, adding a child's muscle sense and other balance-related issues, or aiding those uh, those the muscle sense and balance-related issues. Such play can also have neurological-related benefits, releasing valuable hormones such as oxytocin and dopamine. Just as an aside, I think she's right. I think back to some of the fondest memories of childhood, and, uh, you know, surprisingly, they weren't when I was required to go pick up the dog poop from the yard or clean up the apples that had fallen off our apple tree. They were the times when my dad would roughhouse with me and my sisters. And it was just mindless roughhousing, rolling around on the living room floor, and we were always amazed at how strong he was. But, yeah, that was actually some of the best part of childhood. Secondly, she recommends be patient. Children get into enough mischief or naughtiness to easily provoke any father, yet resisting the urge to give in to such anger and display it in front of his children should be a high priority for dads. The patient kindness of her own father made her far less afraid to approach him with problems or difficulties, and the father who can maintain such open communication is far less likely to raise children with the daddy issues that cause heartache to the child and society at large. This next recommendation also strikes home. Read to them and tell them stories. She says, Dad read a range of books to us, including advanced novels such as Anne of Green Gables and George MacDonald's The Princess and Curdie, and easy readers such as the now non-politically correct Dan Frontier series. But he didn't stop with that. He also made spin-offs, spoofing Dan Frontier books with characters from our neighborhood and created his own stories. Maddie's Island was a long-running serial spun from his mind. Not every father's going to be a storyteller like hers was, but she says pretty much any father can read, and reading out loud to children helps them with vocabulary, comprehension, and increased interest in reading, thus building a foundation for future success in school. Reading out loud is also linked to a decrease in behavioral issues such as aggression or hyperactivity. Next, she recommends love their mother. Now, this is probably the oldest advice in the book, but that's probably because it's true. If children see their father loves, protects, cares about, and provides for their mother, then they gain the security needed to freely live and enjoy life, unstifled by the worry of a broken home or abandonment. Such security will follow them into adulthood, enabling them to enter to better enter positive relationships and relationships that mirror the positive one they saw between their father and mother. Okay, last one, follow God. She says, one of the best ways to be a good father is to know the best father of all, God. Those fathers who know him on a personal level, learning his kind, patient, gracious, and just nature, 
will then be able to mirror such character to their own children. And the more those children are connected with that heavenly father via their earthly one, the less chance there will be of forming the instability and insecurity in life that so characterizes daddy issues. Annie Holmquist says today's society does a good job of insinuating that fathers are worthless and unnecessary, but nothing could be further from the truth. The more good men there are who step forward to raise their children right, the fewer lost, lonely, and adrift young people with daddy issues will have. Now, I've got a link to this in the show notes, and I want to add one quick annotation here, something that I've personally observed and that, uh, to me, uh, earns my deepest respect. And that is, I realize that not every family is in a perfect situation. There are families that are broken. There are families that have had to deal with divorce. I have personally known a number of fathers who have uh, literally gone to the ends of the earth to be a part of their children's life, even if the marriage to the kid's mother had ended. And they did it without being belittling or still, you know, being combative towards their their ex-spouse. They put those kids first. Sometimes they had to uproot and move themselves, you know, hundreds of miles or thousands of miles to be a part of their kid's life. That's, that's something that commands respect. And it bespeaks uh, a selflessness that I think pays uh, great dividends in helping to raise good children in less than ideal circumstances. So take that for what it's worth. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to give some recognition to Dixie Chiropractic, one of my great sponsors. That's Dr. Ward Wagner. They're located in St. George, Utah. And specifically, Dr. Wagner has asked me to reach out to those in my audience who might be dealing with car accident injuries or bulging herniated discs or neuropathy. All of these can involve pain. All of these are things that he and his office can help with. You can go to DixieCairo.com to get full details on these things. But specifically, for those with bulging herniated discs, ask about the $99 intro special, which consists of two treatments plus massage. Just reach out to Dixie Chiropractic at DixieCairo.com. Or for neuropathy, ask about the $99 CalMare treatment plus massage. Again, DixieCairo.com will put you in touch with them. When you're making your appointment, please let them know you heard about Dixie Chiropractic on this program. So how bad do various authoritarians want to exert control over you and your children? Now, you probably know the answer is pretty bad. It's, it's, it's real bad. In fact, as Carrie McDonald explains, it's bad enough for MSNBC to claim that homeschooling is driven by insidious racism. Check this out. On Friday, MSNBC shared a tweet claiming homeschooling is being driven by the insidious racism of the American religious right. While Anthea Butler, the opinion columnist who wrote the article referenced by the tweet, never used that specific phrase, her piece implies that homeschooling is a strategy used by white evangelical parents to destroy public schooling and uphold racial segregation. The tweet actually says, it may seem harmless, but the insidious racism of the American religious rights obsession with homeschooling speaks volumes, writes Anthea Butler. Now, the facts 
including those which Butler acknowledges in her article, simply do not reflect her theory. Carrie McDonald says Butler, a professor of religious and Africana studies at the University of Pennsylvania, asserts that homeschooling originated out of the work of Christian fundamentalist Rusas Rushduni in the 1960s. But she neglects to mention that the rise of the modern homeschooling movement was broad and bipartisan, capturing both the political left and right, who were equally dissatisfied with public schooling and other American institutions at the time. As education professor and author of Homeschool in American History, Milton Gaither writes, quote, Given this pan-ideological commitment to local, authentic, private life and contempt for establishment liberalism, it's not surprising that members of both the countercultural right and the countercultural cultural left reacted for different reasons against the 20th century expansion of public education into a near-universal experience, end quote. Now, Butler goes on to claim that conservative Christian ideology continues to negatively influence today's homeschoolers, even as she admits the recent increase in homeschooling is coming from non-white, non-evangelical families. She gives a nod to the U.S. Census Bureau data showing that the independent homeschooling rate more than doubled in 2020 to 11.1% of the U.S. K-12 through school-age population. Now, some of that increase may be attributed to black parents and other diverse groups who are now finding homeschooling as an attractive alternative, writes Butler. According to the Census Bureau, the number of black homeschoolers increased five-fold between spring and fall of 2020, from 3.3% to 16.1%. Black children were overrepresented in the homeschooling population compared to the overall K-12 public school population. Carrie McDonald says... The Census Bureau also found that much of the recent homeschooling growth occurred in areas that would not be considered religious or politically conservative. For example, she says the Boston-Cambridge area where she lives and homeschools her children saw homeschooling increase from 0.9% to 8.9% in 2020. Recent data analyzed by the Associated Press show that homeschooling rate the homeschooling rate remains at record high levels this academic year. Now, this is even as schools are open for full-time, in-person learning, suggesting that many new homeschooling families enjoy the freedom and flexibility this educational approach offers. Fortunately, even parents and onlookers who may be indifferent to homeschooling, including some who identify as being on the left politically, can see through MSNBC's false assertion that insidious racism is motivating modern homeschoolers. For instance, in response to the MSNBC tweet, it may seem harmless, but the insidious racism of the American religious rights obsession with homeschooling speaks volumes. This is from NYC Angry Mom, who says, A lot of liberals, such as myself, felt incredibly disoriented during the Trump administration because of the blatant, easily verifiable lies that were jammed down our throat. I feel that way now about the current left-wing media. This is pure propaganda, not aligned to the facts. She goes on to say, in response to, uh, to a tweet about how it's not just white families who are moving to homeschooling. 9.7% of white families with kids have pulled out of traditional education, as have 12.1% of Hispanic families, 8.8% of Asian families, and 16.1% of black families. And this uh, NYC angry mom says, I'm completely dispassionate about homeschooling, but when you look at the actual numbers... This uptrend in homeschooling doesn't appear to be driven by racism or religiosity. Imagine that. Carrie McDonald says, indeed, 
The most recent federal data on why parents choose homeschooling revealed that concern about the environment of other schools, including safety, drugs, and negative peer pressure, is the top motivator. Only 16% of homeschooling parents in the nationally representative sample chose a desire to provide religious instruction as their top motivator. Of course, even if religious instruction was the top motivator of today's homeschooling families, that wouldn't be a reason to criticize homeschooling or call those doing it racist. She says the response to MSNBC's tweet was swift and severe with most comments and shares expressing outrage over the article and MSNBC's social media interpretation. Some voiced concern that there will now be calls for a ban on homeschooling. But these calls have been around for years. Carrie McDonald reminds us back in June of 2020, she debated Harvard Law School professor Elizabeth Bartholay, who called for a presumptive ban on homeschooling. Now, these calls for homeschooling bans are not new, and they will persist. But as more families choose homeschooling and more resources, such as micro-schools and hybrid schools, emerge to support homeschoolers, calls to ban homeschooling will continue to be ignored. Homeschooling is here to stay, driven by a demographically, geographically, and ideologically diverse group of families who share a common goal of wanting to take a more active role in their children's education. Media companies and academics can claim homeschooling is being chosen for nefarious reasons, but the facts simply don't support it. It's so interesting to me. Because back before my wife and I even had kids, we became friends with a number of homeschoolers. In fact, at the time, we were living in southern Idaho and uh, became friends with a family that had moved to Idaho from, I believe, South Carolina. One of the reasons they gave for moving to Idaho from clear across the country was because their state at the time, South Carolina, had a very antagonistic attitude toward homeschoolers. I mean, it was just like one step above, what, what are you doing? Is this about child labor? Are you, what, what's going on here? They wanted, uh, you know, absolute oversight in everything. Idaho, on the other hand, was very friendly to homeschoolers. And these parents made no bones about, you know, we moved here because we felt we had a better chance to homeschool our kids. Now, that was well over a quarter century ago. In that time, I have personally seen homeschooling become much more mainstream, much more broadly accepted. And having actually been on the practicing end of it, I can tell you, it's a wonderful experience for those who choose to avail themselves of it. Now, I'm not suggesting everybody should do it. Because frankly, there are some kids who respond in a more structured environment. Sometimes the government school provides that environment for them. And I think Carrie McDonald would back me up on this one. She is definitely an advocate for educational choice. Let parents decide what is best for their kids. Oh, sure, those parents aren't professional educators. But I think they actually outrank the professional educators in terms of those parents have a direct accountability to their children and to God. And I think the vast majority of them take that pretty seriously. So stay out of their way. Let them teach their kids as they feel best. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. And once again, let me just take a moment here to thank you for being part of our audience. 
Thank you for reveling in wrong think, questioning the narrative, and accompanying me on this journey off the uh, mainstream path and into uh, a little bit more productive paths as far as finding truth. I want to thank lifesavingfood.com for being one of my sponsors and providing my listeners with a great resource that, that gets more timely with every passing day. If you haven't been to their website, I've got a handy link right there in my show notes. I would encourage you, check it out for yourself. You don't have to buy a whole full year's supply at one time. You can just, you know, buy a little bit here, a little bit there, but it adds up. And the, and the time to do it was, of course, 10 years ago or yesterday, or you could start today. But putting it off really won't be an option for a whole lot longer. So maybe, uh, maybe get a move on, click on the link, see if there's something that you need. And if you find out that there is, I would ask you consider doing business with lifesavingfood.com. Speaking of food, got my hands dirty last night as we we sat down and planted uh, about half of our garden. Now, I'm very fortunate. My in-laws have a very nice large gardening plot. I'm thinking it's like 50 by 25 or 30 feet. It's a a good-sized plot. And uh, we laid out the sprinkler system for it last week. We have uh, planted, you know, tomatoes and peppers and other things uh, yesterday. And we've, we have more that we're going to be planting this weekend. So this is the year that I'm discovering the joy of growing my own food. I wonder if uh, anybody else within earshot is, is doing this. Are you, are you finding yourself contemplating the idea of uh, producing more of your own food? See, Simon Black has some thoughts on the coming food crisis. By the way, he puts that in quotation marks. And he advises that developing those gardening skills is never a bad idea. But about that coming food crisis, he's got some very interesting thoughts. He says, on Wednesday, July 3rd, in the year 1315, King Louis X of France, also known as Louis the Headstrong, issued a groundbreaking edict. Whereas, according to the natural right, everyone should be born free, he began... Many persons amongst our common people have fallen into the bonds of slavery, which much displeaseth us. That's not easy to say. Our kingdom is called and named the kingdom of the Franks, which means free in Old French. Therefore, I do decree that such serfdom be redeemed to freedom. And like that, with the stroke of a quill, Louis X abolished slavery and serfdom in France. Unfortunately for the serfs, the king's emancipation didn't last very long. Louis died less than a year later following a particularly grueling tennis match, true story, and his successors weren't so liberal. More than four centuries later, in fact, in the mid-1700s, there were still more than one million feudal serfs in France, according to historian Hippolyte Taine. And their plight was even worse than their medieval ancestors. An 18th century serf in France was subject to feudal dues of at least 14% to his local nobleman. Plus, there were a host of other absurd regulations. A French serf was tied to the land and unable to leave without his lord's consent. They were required to provide several weeks of free labor to the government, and any serf who died without children had all of his possessions forfeited to the nobility. On top of this tax, the French serf was required to pay a 10% tithing to the church, and on top of that, the national government also imposed taxes. There was a 5% national income tax, a national ad valorem tax on personal possessions, and national sales taxes on common goods like salt. 
the French government had also created an army of tax collectors who were authorized to to forcibly enter people's homes to search for hidden wealth and arbitrarily seize their property in the case of any suspected tax evasion. This is how the word peasant became synonymous with poor person, because peasant is derived from the French word pesant, which literally meant civilian in Old French. It wasn't until the 1700s when French citizens, the paysans, were taxed into destitution that the term added its impoverished meaning. Travelers from England who crossed into France at the time were shocked at the poverty they saw. One English lady, one English traveler rather, Lady Mary Montagu, wrote of her trip to a French village in 1718 that the whole town came out to beg. With such miserable starved faces and thin tattered clothes, they need no eloquence to persuade the wretchedness of their condition. And Simon Black says it was under such wretched conditions that invention and innovation died. French taxes were so high and the people were so miserable that no one had any incentive to develop technology or become more productive. French productivity and agriculture were at least a century behind England, which was already using machinery and advanced crop rotation techniques. The French economy essentially remained in the Dark Ages thanks to the government destroying every incentive to grow. Now, this is a familiar theme throughout history. Governments have a tendency to create terrible conditions and bad incentives that hold back an economy. We can see this everywhere today. And one area in particular is this supposed food crisis that everyone is talking about. Bill Gates, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, the head of the U.N. World Food Program, Germany's foreign minister, McKinsey and Company, the New York Times, CNN, they're all warning of a food crisis. Even the president of the United States said of food shortages, it's going to be real. Just like the 81 million people who voted for him. Wink, wink. Now, reports of a full-blown food crisis are overstated, says Simon Black. And here's what he means. There is plenty of food in the world, plenty of production. The sun didn't stop shining. The soil wasn't suddenly depleted of its nutrients. Frankly, there are always challenges with food production somewhere in the world every year. Now, just this year, there was a bird flu that wiped out millions of chickens in the United States. Farmers in southern and eastern Ukraine are obviously struggling. But what you probably didn't hear is that Australia had a record wheat harvest this season. Ironically, so did Russia. Brazilian corn production is a near record high 112 million metric tons. Countless fruits, vegetables, and nuts ranging from avocados to olives to walnuts to tomatoes are being produced at or near record quantities. Plus, he says, even if there were really were critical problems with food production, there's a vast amount of land in the world that could be planted, especially with seasonal cereal crops like wheat. Now, you might have heard a lot about fertilizer shortages over the past few months. However, the key ingredients in agricultural fertilizers, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, are not in short supply. Nitrogen is one of the most abundant elements in the universe. Literally 80% of the air we breathe is composed of nitrogen. Phosphorus, which comes from phosphate mining, is incredibly abundant in the United States, Brazil, and Morocco. And potassium comes from potash mining, of which Canada has the world's biggest production and reserves. So the bottom line is the world is not lacking 
any of the ingredients to produce food. But it has definitely become more challenging to move food from farm to fridge, however. He says this system, harvest, packing, inspection, shipping, warehousing, worked well for decades. The global supply chain only broke down recently because of pandemic hysteria, and some of this has undoubtedly affected the food trade. But like France's economic plight in the early 1700s, this is mostly a question of bad government. At its core, there is nothing wrong with the global supply chain. Need convincing? Okay. Consider that Pfizer's been able to produce billions of vaccines, distribute them across the world, and even manage to maintain a temperature of minus 90 degrees centigrade during shipment. You never hear anyone talk about global supply chain problems when it comes to vaccine distribution. But with respect to baby formula in the United States, well, suddenly there's an insurmountable problem with the global supply chain. He says the bottom line is that the global supply chain works, but only when they really want it to work. And their prioritization is utterly disgusting. They could fix all of it. If the government is so concerned about high oil prices, why haven't they fast-tracked new production? If they're so concerned about fertilizer prices, why haven't they fast-tracked permitting for new phosphate mines or potash mines or fertilizer production plants? Whether you chalk it up to them deliberately destroying the economy or just a comical level of incompetence, the results are obvious. And the baby formula fiasco is the perfect example. And that's why it's so interesting to hear Joe Biden say that the food crisis is going to be real because he seems hell-bent on making it happen. Even more ridiculous are the solutions to the supposed food crisis. We have our techno-aristocracy like Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg who want to reimagine how us peasants should, win our, should live our lives. Rather, They're calling for green revolution, which sounds idealistic, until you see what they're actually suggesting. They want to pump our foods full of more chemicals and raise the bar on genetic modification. Gates wants us to eat synthetic beef and alternative protein. And his buddies at the World Economic Forum think we should eat weeds and insects. These people are insane. Simon Black says, fortunately, it's quite easy to distance yourself from their ideas. After all, a lot of our basic foods are super easy to grow. Simple greens like lettuce and cilantro can be planted in a windowsill box and be ready to eat in just a couple of weeks. If you have access to sunlight, a little bit of soil, and a paper cup, you can start taking back control today. That's actually good news, isn't it? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I want to send a shout out here to HSLAmmo.com. I got a link provided in my show notes. And if you find yourself in need of good, high-quality, new or remanufactured ammo, HSL Ammo is the one I'd point you toward. You know, it hasn't been easy. Speaking of supply chain problems, keeping keeping ammo manufacturing going has been a bit of a challenge. But, uh, man, my friend Spencer Worthington is one of the best and hardest-working individuals I know. He has built from the ground up a marvelous ammunition company, provided great employment opportunities for people right there within his community. And he's providing you with a commodity that can do a number of things. It can be a store of value. Some people will invest in ammo as a commodity, understanding that it can be bartered or or traded or otherwise sold off, um, you know, while the dollar continues to depreciate in its purchasing power. 
Ammo remains valuable. It's also a great way to convert money into skill. And skill at arms is a good thing to have. So thanks again to HSLAmmo.com. I don't know if you caught this yesterday, but uh, uh, former President George W. Bush had a very recent gaffe about a brutal, unjustified invasion. Now, he was talking about Russia and Ukraine, but I want you to hear this in his own words, how this actually played out. This, this is nothing short of remarkable. The result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. What? I mean, of Ukraine. <laughs> Iraq, too. Anyway. Uh, 75. Uh, wow. Wow. I mean, that's just, you know... It's, it's a perfect example of a Freudian slip, I guess. Maybe the most uh, perfect example that's happened in our lifetime. The unconscious is always letting you know what needs the light. One man made a decision to launch a brutal and unjustified invasion. Yeah, well, that, that guy didn't happen to call himself the decider, did he? I'm just sorry. I know this is, this is opening an old wound for a lot of people, but sometimes you just have to wonder. You just have to wonder about the the people who push war as the answer to life's problems. And I'm sorry to say George W. Bush was one of them. I had high hopes when he was elected back in 20 in uh, 2000 rather and uh, it that was probably one of the big major turning points for me was to recognize that oh he gave great lip service to the constitution but in practice he trashed it just as quickly as he could following September 11th. And we have been less free every consecutive year since then, not because of the Taliban, not because of Osama bin Laden, not because of Al-Qaeda, but because of what our own government has done. So with that in mind, I want to share with you a commentary from the Z-Man. This is, uh, this is one of my favorite commentators. And he talks about what exactly is going on, how the warmongers among us seem to be losing their minds. The Z-Man says, In America, what's called the political left operates within a few modes of thought tied to seminal events on the left. So uh, one is the civil rights era, another's the Watergate era, the other is interwar Europe. And all the events are framed by this period. If they don't fit in these models, then they're usually ignored. Now, of course, their framing of these periods is cartoonish and absurd, It's all easy to understand heroes and villains who are stripped of moral ambiguity and nuance. And what passes for the right has always been an echo of the left, so they've evolved similar framings. It took a while, but the 1980s is one of their primary frameworks for talking about current events. They're always looking for the next Reagan, the next Margaret Thatcher, or Bill Buckley among the current uh, mediocrities. And the answer to almost every issue is a slogan from the high-water point of conservatism— Modern conservatism is a cargo cult where current members ape the members of the past. So, like their friends on the left, the right also has an obsession for the interwar period in Europe, but with a different emphasis. While the left checks under their bed every night to make sure Hitler's not waiting for them, the right is always sure Neville Chamberlain is lurking somewhere, ready to give away the Sudetenland. Like their left, like the left, rather, their understanding of the time is cartoonish and absurd. All the players are exaggerated heroes or villains with crude moral choices. 
Now, this is painful to understand, but I think he's right here. This can be traced to the Reagan years. His innovation in the Cold War was to call the Russians the evil empire. This may be the first example of a politician convincing adults by using a reference to a children's show. Everyone dealing with an affluent white female liberal who quotes Harry Potter all the time can thank Ronald Reagan for that bit of cultural innovation. Ever since, the right has sorted the world into extreme villains and themselves as heroes. Now, of course, the most extreme villain is Hitler. Now, Reagan shopped, stopped short, rather, of calling Gorbachev the new Hitler, but that generation knew their history. Those that followed have thrown around the Hitler language as recklessly as the left. Saddam Hussein was Hitler, and his party was Islamo-fascist. In fact, every Muslim with a complaint about bombs dropping on his head was called an Islamo-fascist by conservatives. Even the Taliban got this label from conservatives. Now, in this framing, every Hitler needs a Chamberlain and Churchill. In conservative framing, Chamberlain is not a man who wished to avoid another horrible European war, but a foolish sissy unwilling to face reality. And Churchill is not a reckless warmonger known for his alcoholism and lack of judgment, but a heroic visionary who could spot old scratch coming before anyone. Of course, every conservative sees a bit of Churchill in himself, so he's always ready for another war. We see this with the undeclared war on Russia. Putin is Hitler, despite the Russian role in defeating the real Hitler. The Russians are Nazis invading Poland, even though the guys on the other side are extreme Hitler enthusiasts. Biden has to be Chamberlain, even though he barely knows where he is most of the time, and it's his administration that launched the war against Russia. His failure to take it to the nuclear level is proof that he's too soft on the new Hitler. Now, you see this deranged mental state in the American conservative, in this American conservative post, which he links to, about a warmonger convention held in D.C., those who point out the massive failure of 30 years of pointless wars of choice are now called neo-isolationist. Note how not supporting aggressive imperial wars of domination is isolationism. Note that the people who say this love quoting the founders, except the part where Washington warned about entangling alliances. Now, the Z-Man says part of this framing is lack of scruples by modern conservatives. The warmonger events are sponsored by the war machine and they pay well. Sites like National Review are wholly dependent on money from big tech and the military-industrial complex, so they're happy to sell endless war, foreign and domestic. Conservatism's now just public relations, the public relations arm of the security state. That's why they never expose themselves to push back on these issues. That aside, it still leaves the obsession with Hitler. In the middle of the last century, the men who actually fought real Nazis rarely mentioned Hitler. The occasional joke about the old enemies was as much as they did. Their children, and now their grandchildren, who grew up insulated from all of life's troubles, are obsessed with events that happened almost a century ago in another country. The war on Russia reveals that this derangement is getting worse. Now, the answer may simply be that so-called conservatives are just boys and girls playing a role wearing costumes too large for them. Like children in their parents' clothes, modern political actors are midgets, compared to the men who created the roles they're now asked to play. To make up for the fact that they are fleas on the society they inherited, they exaggerate their role in it. A similar phenomenon drives the left, which also operates like a cargo cult. Another factor is cultural inertia. The global American empire was born in the Second World War, and its evolution was in the context of its shadow. The Cold War was driven by the energy of the war against fascism. The energy from the initial creation of the empire was channeled into the Cold War. 
The residual energy that now gets channeled into endless wars of choice is just cultural inertia. It's the old rationale for existence looking for a place to go in a post-Cold War age. So the Z-Man says regardless, the only way forward for America and the West is to finally close the books on the 20th century. That will require a lot of funerals and retirement parties, but Father Time is undefeated in this regard. Once the people defined by the endless fights over old ideas like nationalism, fascism, and communism are gone, then the new fights over civilizationalism can begin. The question is whether the actuarial tables can do their magic before it's too late. Interesting. I have to agree that uh, a lot of this is just... You know, people in power looking for a reason to support that national security state that was created in the most Faustian bargain ever following World War II. And it's not like we haven't been warned along the way. Even President Eisenhower warned about the military-industrial complex and what it was becoming. Hey, that was a long time ago. That was more than 60 years ago. It's not getting better. I guess there's not a lot you and I can do, but awareness is a good start. And refusal to give your consent and your allegiance to such individuals or such movements, I'd say that's probably a pretty important thing as well. This is The Brian Hyde Show.